I want to welcome everybody to Katusa First. Typically what we do here is we work our way through a book of the Bible at a time. And we do that for very specific reasons. One, I grew up knowing a lot of stories, but I never knew how the stories fit together. So like I knew who Moses was and I knew who Samson was, but I didn't know the story. And we need to realize even though there is a back page to the Bible, the story isn't done, that the story continues. You know, I was learning something while I was on a sabbatical in January. One of the reasons that Jewish people have been so successful uh, when it comes to uh, like Nobel Prize winners in different fields, uh, and a crazy percentage of them have a Jewish background. And even though they're a small percentage of the population, they've made some incredible achievements. And one of the reasons they say that happens is because they have always known their story. I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, the Jewish life, but as you grow up, it seems like every two weeks there's another festival and another meal that they gather together as a family, and those meals tell a story of their history. So as a child is growing up, he's told all the time, day after day, uh, holiday after holiday, about who his people are and who he is within that story. So when a Jewish person becomes a teenager, they aren't spending seven, eight years trying to find themselves. They've always known who they are because they've always heard their story. A lot of us, we don't know where we are in the story. We don't know who we are in the big picture of Scripture. And because we don't know that, we don't know that we're always trying to find ourselves. So one of the reasons we work our way through a book of the Bible and try to connect New Testament to Old Testament all the time is because I want you to know where you are in the story. Right? I, I want you to know where you fit in and where you belong so that you can live out the story that God has for you. That being said, we're not doing that this week. <laughs> we are not going to be in Luke. And the reason was, is we talked just briefly. There was uh, the story of the poor woman who gave what was the equivalent of uh, a half a penny, two half a pennies um, into the offering. And Jesus was commending how great it was, not because of what she gave, but because of the heart with which she gave. And we never talk about money at this church. Like it's because I'm always afraid somebody's going to show up for their first time and it's a money sermon. And they're going to think all this church does is ever talk about money, right? It's one of those kind of maybe an overreaction that I personally have from growing up in church where I would hear about money and tithing all the time. But it's an important part of Scripture. There's over 2,300 verses about finances in the Bible, but it's something that we just don't talk about. And I just recently finished reading a book that had some really good principles, and I'm just literally just like stealing these principles out of the book, okay? So I'll tell you that ahead of time. But it was the book, um, it's called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, and it's by a guy named Costi Hinn. Now, you might be familiar with his uncle, Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn is one of the most famous televangelists and prosperity gospel preachers. He's kind of an evil dude. Um, and he grew up in that environment where they would fly to Africa and they would go into these extremely poor communities and tell them that they could receive uh, healing if they would give an offering. And so you would be in these villages where they just lived in huts and had dirt roads and no money, but they would give whatever they had thinking that it would solve all their problems. And then Benny Hinn would take that money, fly to Dubai on a private jet, and stay in hotels that were $25,000 a night. 
And he grew up in that environment, and he was on track to become um, the person who took over the Benny Hinn ministry. Until God got a hold of his life, and he began to see the real gospel. So it was an interesting perspective to see somebody who had lived the life of luxury all of a sudden give us a very healthy perspective on what money looks like. So though we rarely talk about it, I think it's important that we do so. So all I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a couple principles. This is not a sermon about tithing. You'll notice we don't pass a plate here. If you ever want to give, you can give online. We have a couple of boxes at the back. We don't do compulsory giving where we're like we make you feel guilty. And so all of a sudden you're like, uh, do I have a dollar on me? So you feel good for just putting a dollar in. No, giving is something that we intentionally do as an act of worship to protect ourselves from the love of money by remembering that everything belongs to God. So uh, the first principle is that God owns everything. When it comes to your money, I, I, if I was asked a question, who likes money? I like money, right? There's the song, money, money, money. I was looking to buy one of those. There's these guns that shoot dollar bills. Have you seen those? Right? I was going to try to find one for the sermon and have a bunch of fake dollars and just, just spray it everywhere it, because we laugh about that, but that's our culture. Like Everybody would love to be able to do that. Money is necessary for everything. And so how do we view a healthy view? This is, when it comes to money, this is one of the cornerstones that we need to lay. When it comes to your money, you need to know that God owns everything. Now, if God owns everything, because it says in Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. There's other scripture that says, like, look, if you need something, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If, if he wants to, he can sell one to give you the resources. That, that cow might belong to a farmer, but everything belongs to God. And God can move the world in whatever way he wants to take care of your needs. That God will provide. So if God owns everything, then what relationship do you have with the money in your bank account? It is not your money. You are the manager of it. I've told this story before. I feel like I say that before every story I ever tell. Right? I need more stories, maybe. Um, <laughs> my wife says, my wife says no. Um, we, uh, I, I was, before I was a Christian, I partied really hard, and my parents were missionaries, and so they would be gone during the summer, and so while they were gone, I would throw huge parties at my house, and I would go to the uh, grocery store afterwards and rent one of those rug doctors because somebody always spilt their drink, and I was terrified my parents were going to find out about the party that I threw, so I would clean the whole house. Now, they... I would tell them I did this because I was trying to show them I appreciate them, but I was really just trying to hide the evidence. And I would have that house spotless. And one day, my parents came back from a mission trip, and my mom's in the house for like 10 seconds. Now, I don't know how you guys do this, but like her mom radar is going off, and there's something wrong. And she just kind of steps back and looks, and she sees something under the couch. And it was the cap to a beer bottle. I had missed one thing in the whole house. And she finds it in five minutes. And she pulls it out. And she's like, what is this? You know, and you start doing the dancing, mumbling thing. I don't know where that came from, Mom. 
It must have flown in from outside. It was windy yesterday, right? Like, you start coming up with crazy excuses. My dad pulled me aside. And he didn't seem as angry as I thought he would be, but he seemed sad. And he told me something that I've never forgotten. He says, son, this house is not mine. He says, God has given us this house. I'm merely the manager of it. And I'm not so offended that you threw a party in my house, but I'm offended that you threw a a party in a house that God has given us. He says, this house is God's house, not yours, not mine. Now, it took a while before that really began to have an impact on my life, but when I became a believer, I realized that that's very true. The house that I live in is not my house. He's given me this house so that I can invite other people over into my house. I talked uh, in Collinsville on uh, Friday night, and we talked about the three different tables that God has given us. There's the table of your house, there's the table of the church, and then there's the table of the Lord. And what we try to do is invite people into the table of our house, and once they're there and we have that relationship, we invite them to the table of the church. And we do that so when we leave this life, we can all be together at the table of the Lord. And so I treat my house not as, oh, look what I got, but, oh, what can I give? How can I open my doors up to people who are in need or to just begin to fellowship and have a relationship with other people? And In fact, many of you have been over to our house, and we'll work our way through the list, and hopefully, eventually, all of you will have been to our house and just break bread together in fellowship because we love you and we care for you. And when it comes to our money, it belongs to God. In the same way that the air that I breathe, right? I, I can't make my own air. It's his air. The, the life that I live, it's not my life. I didn't even choose to be born, right? Like, it just happened. It was a gift. So the finances and resources and everything that you have, you manage it. You do not own it. But we live in a culture that's always trying to own more and more things. The reason it's important that you realize is that you don't own it, but you manage it. It's because there's no U-Haul following behind the hearse, right? You, if you owned it, you could take it with you, but there, there's nothing following that car. It's just going to end up in somebody else's house. And we'll learn that when we get into Ecclesiastes after uh, the book of Luke. The second principle is wealth is not guaranteed. Wealth is not guaranteed. This is an important message. And sometimes... Uh, we do talk about the prosperity gospel a fair amount in this church, and I think it's important because we don't realize uh, there was an African pastor who said not too long ago that the prosperity gospel is the number one export of the U.S. And all these foreign countries, these third world places, there are twice as many prosperity gospel missionaries going than there are faithful, obedient, Bible-believing missionaries. And the dangerous thing about the prosperity gospel that Tulsa is one of the main centers of, uh, a lot of the, the things that we've seen, the Benny Hens and stuff, that, that comes from Oral Roberts. Benny Hinn and Oral Roberts, like Benny Hinn idolized Oral Roberts and learned from him how to do this. Churches like Victory and Rama are prosperity gospel churches. And they're sending out people all the time. And one of the things that their claim is, is that wealth is guaranteed for every believer. Health and wealth are guaranteed for every believer. Well, that's strange because I've seen prosperity gospel preachers that wear glasses. And they believe that you should never be sick. 
but if you wear glasses and your eyes don't work perfectly. So it's, I just find it, it, there's automatic inconsistencies. And we see that, but you know, there's a lot of people who are hungry for health and wealth. There's a lot of people who think just having those two things would solve all of their problems. But Jesus tells us in John 12a that the poor you will always have among you. Those with extra are called to help those who have nothing. Now, there's a discussion to be had, and the Bible has it, about those who are lazy, right? So there's a difference between just poor due to circumstances and poor due to laziness. And we don't have a time to get into the whole discussion about laziness, but when it comes to those who are poor, for reasons outside of their own actions, maybe they're just born into a poor family, maybe they're not physically able to work, and they just don't have the resources that you and I do, the Bible has so much to say, and I have a list of some of those things up there. We do not oppress, but be kind to them. That we lend to the poor and trust God with results. Be generous and share food with the poor. Give to the poor and don't ignore them and protect the rights of the poor. It seems like, I don't know, call me crazy, but Jesus was highly concerned with the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. That Jesus had a real passion for those who were desperate and longing and those who had lots of wealth seemed to miss who Jesus was. Do you find that when you read scripture? And if Jesus is so concerned with the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized, then shouldn't we, if we have a heart like Jesus, be concerned for the same things? Now, all of us here are rich. By worldly standards, you're in the top 1%. Now, you might look around at other neighborhoods in your area and feel like you're not that rich. But in a global scale, we are rich. And we have to decide. We have to make real difficult decisions about how do we manage our wealth and what is it for. Contentment is the goal of every believer, not wealth. If you're a believer, the goal is contentment, not wealth. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 8 says this, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Let me just ask you a tough question. If all you had was food and clothes, are you content with that? If you only had food and clothes. Because this is what Jesus promises. He says, look at the flowers of the field. Look how well they're clothed. Don't you think I'll clothe you? Look at the birds. Are they hungry? They, they've got food. I will clothe and feed you. If all you had was food and clothes but Jesus, are you okay or are you depressed and anxious and freaked out? Because if we're not content with just the essential and the basics, there's a Paul who says, look, I've learned to be content, whether I'm rich or poor. And that's where the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me verse comes from, right? It's not about your volleyball team. It's about I can be extremely broke and I can be really rich. Doesn't matter. I'm content no matter what. And if, I mean, Quite frankly, the economic system of the United States is struggling right now. I don't know if your 401k is invested in stocks. If it is, and if you've checked it out lately, you've lost a lot of money. And, and quite frankly, we're not sure if it's going to get better this year or next year or whatever it is. That the world economic system can be thrown off totally by a little invisible bug, right? Like the whole world was thrown into chaos and people lost everything. The things that we think are solid and indestructible. Now, 
our economic system is much more fragile than we give it. And so if we can't be content with God providing the basics, then we might have some idol issues that we need to work on. There might be some places of idolatry there. The last uh, two more principles. Number three, wealth is a tool of the gospel. Now, read this one with me here, because I think this is really important. It says, In this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Isn't that incredible? Don't put your hope in wealth, but wealth is a tool for the gospel. The amount of missionaries that the Foreign Mission Board, especially Southern Baptists, send out now has dropped drastically. Drop drastically. And it won't be long. There's a statistic that says that 80% of missionaries are around retirement age. 80% of missionaries are close to the age of retirement. And there are no young people ready to take their place. You know why? Because they got big hopes and big dreams to have big wealth. To go and be a part of the International Mission Board, you can't have debt because they're going to pay you, and they don't want the resources going to you going just to paying off that credit card, right, for that PlayStation 5 that you got. That you couldn't afford, but you just like, I'll make payments, and you swipe that card. One of the number one reasons people can no longer go on mission trips, even short-term or long-term, is because of student debt. These kids, they get out of college. They can't go to the mission field because they're going to be paying for the next 15 years, plus interest on student debt loans. And so even if God was to call them because they did not manage their money and think of it as a tool for the gospel, they've delayed obedience by an incredible amount. One thing that we can learn from the Mormon missionaries that you might see around from time to time, their entire families spend their life planning to send their kids on a mission trip. They're going to, these kids... uh, by when they turn 18 years old, right after high school, a large portion of Mormon young men and women will spend two years on the mission field all over the world. They learn another language. And the reason they can do that is because their family has been setting aside for their kids to go on mission trips. And when the time comes, the whole families come together and say, hey, we've raised the $40,000 a year that you're going to need to go on these mission trips. It puts us to shame sometimes, doesn't it? Have you saved for your kids to go on mission trips? Have you been setting aside, planning for the the future? Because your kid needs that significant task. They need that rite of passage to solidify their faith or they're just going to wander around. Now, a mission trip isn't the only way to do it. There's other ways to do it. But a mission trip is one of the greatest ways that you can expose the next generation to how big the world is how hungry it is for the gospel. Your money is not a tool to make you rich. Your money is a tool to build the kingdom. 
It is his money. Now, there's nothing wrong with being rich, and the Bible lets us know that too. So this isn't, if you are got a comfortable living, this isn't like a guilt trip for you, because there's nothing wrong with a comfortable living. It's just what is our cornerstone, what is our priority? Are we storing up treasures in heaven, or are we doing it here? The last principle. Wealth is a tug of war. So there's always a battle between being generous and the natural inclination to keep it all for yourself. As your pastor, it took me a long time to get comfortable with tithing. Because it could be a car payment, couldn't it? Right? If you take 10% of your income and you give that to the church, what could you do with that? And it used to be every time I would write out the tithe check, I go, I could really do this with that too, right? You start to think, I was like, oh man. But eventually you just get in the habit. You don't think that way anymore. But at first you go, that's a lot of money. That's all I, like every month I give that. I could have that car I wanted. Or we could go on that trip. Or we could do those things. But then what am I doing? I, I'm ignoring the cornerstone. I'm thinking of it as my money. And in fact, we should be generous because it's not that I'm giving 10% of my money to God. He's letting me keep 90% of his money. That's very nice of him, right? He's letting me keep his money. Here's some warnings the scripture has about money. You can't serve both God and money. No man can have two masters. The deceitfulness of riches chokes out fruitfulness. It's difficult for people to choose Christ over wealth. It's hard for a rich person to accept the free gift of God. The love of money is the root of all evil. And that's important because some people say that money is the root to all evil. But it's the love of money is the root of all evil. And finally, Mark 8, 36. You can gain the whole world, but lose your soul. I, I hate money sermons, can I be honest? I feel uncomfortable the whole time up here talking about finances. Um, because I never want you to think that, like, I, this is not like the guilt trip, but I want you to see the fruit in your life when it comes, when you develop Christian discipline of managing your money in a godly way. I want to see the fruit that comes in your life when you begin to do that. And it doesn't mean you have to give just 10% to this church all the time. There's missionaries that you can give to as well. But I want you to give with a passionate heart as an act of worship for the kingdom. And sometimes uh, I'm afraid we will work ourselves ragged for money. And then we don't have enough left over for our kids and our wife. Because we're so exhausted... My dad, and I can tell this story because it's my dad. Um, I don't have to ask permission. But my dad would admit that when, he was, uh, when I was younger, he was a workaholic. And he worked all the time. In fact, it was really hard for us because he was a youth pastor. So he spent his evenings at other kids' house playing and get to know other kids when he barely knew us. And so I confronted him on that many years down the road. I said it was really hard because... You were gone all the time. He says, yeah, but if I, if I worked hard enough and went to all these speaking things, then I could give you the things that you wanted. I says, I didn't want any of that stuff. I just wanted my dad. 
And that's when we learned that love is spelled T-I-M-E, not M-O-N-E-Y. Love is time. And I just wanted this time. But some of us, we think what our, we want to give our kids more than what we have. And so we work really hard and, and we're gone all the time and we're gone weekends and weeknights and we see them in passing sometimes. And it's like the greatest gift I can give my kids is a godly example of how to manage my money and my time because I have put Christ first. I've put him first. And then it gives me those chance to pour into my kids and we get to have these little side conversations about the gospel. Or we get to talk about the word. Why is that going on? Well, you see, there's a lot of people who don't know the love and grace of Christ. And when they don't know that, they act out in these awful ways. And so it's your job when you go to school or as you're older and you go to work to tell them about the love and grace of Christ. It gives us all those little side teachable moments. And it starts when they're young. Your fear, your anxiety, your uncertainty about the future will not be solved by having more money. No, duh, right? But we believe it. Like, it's a no-duh statement. More money won't make me happy. No, duh. But we believe it. We act like it. We live it. I do it. If I do it, you probably do it. I'm not just projecting my, my flaws here. I've had enough conversations with enough people. To know that if we had the car that we wanted, if we had the home, that we are striving so hard to build something that is eventually going to get passed on to somebody else. The average American household has close to $40,000 in debt, not including car and home. That's credit cards and student loans. The average American household has somewhere around twenty dollars to $25,000 in credit card debt. drowning in debt. And so when opportunities for the gospel come along, or um, I'll be posting this week on our uh, conversation, Katusa, not uh, our uh, Katusa First page, about is there interest on going on a mission trip during the 4th of July? Uh, there's a chance that we can go to a place in Utah. I, I don't have all the details to give to you yet. I can't tell you how much it costs. And it's during the 4th of July weekend. But it's uh, a place, it, it's one of the largest uh, it used to be home to the largest polygamous cult in the United States. And their leader was the most wanted man by the FBI. And now they're trying to find out what their identity is freed from a fundamental Mormon religious cult. And there's opportunities for the gospel there that just abound. But a lot of people don't want to give up the time or the resources. And it's not my job or goal to guilt you into that because there might be other things that God has called you to do but if God was called you to do something or to help somebody else out would you have the resources or would you go you know what I've got too much debt I can't help anybody else that's a prison that the enemy has created to keep you from being as effective and productive as you could be and so sometimes we need sermons like this to remind us that there's a key to get out of that when we prioritize Christ and we're faithful, he helps us to prioritize our money and our time so that we can give it to the kingdom. Right? Y'all ready for this sermon to be over? I am.
Yeah. <laughs> um, here's the invitation. We're going to have an invitation. We take communion here every week. And I got done a little early, too. Great. Uh, we take communion here every week, and it's for anyone who's a believer. I, I just got a text from a friend about five seconds ago before I came up here. He says, I went to a Catholic church today because I hadn't been to a church in a while, and they said I can't take communion because I'm not Catholic. Well, Catholic means universal. And so if you are a believer in Christ, uh, then we are a part of the Catholic Church. Not that one, but the universal body of Christ, right? And so I don't care if you're a member here or not. If you love Jesus, come and eat at the table. Come and eat at the table of the church and fellowship with us. We break bread together. Take it back to your seat. Lean to whoever you're next to. Have a time of prayer with them. Don't wait on me. I'm not going to drink and eat. You just do it on your own time after a time of prayer. But first, we're going to have a, a time of response. The band is going to come up here and play. And we're just going to ask ourselves, uh, how are we doing financially? My wife and I, when we go on a date, um, and we tell this when we do our premarital counseling, when we go on a date, we try to ask several questions, and we just say, rate them 1 to 10. And it's a great way for us to have these conversations without it being like out of anger, right? So we say, how are we doing in our communication on a scale of 1 to 10? And I might be like, I think I'm like an 8, you know, and she's like, you're a 4. And then we get to talk about why, why we obviously aren't communicating well on that. But we go through different things, and one of them, how are we doing financially? Because if we're not communicating well, then I know we're probably not doing well financially. Right? And we, we will say, you know, I think we're at a 5, or I think we're at a 7, or I think we're at a 3, wherever it is we are. But when was the last time you sat down as a family and just said, how are we doing financially? Is our life a life of generosity? I'll be, can I just be gut level honest with you? It's scary, you know, but I try to be, I want to make more money. Who here wants to make more money? Everybody, right? Everybody wants to make more money. I do. Um, I think God kept me poor for a really long time. I don't, I'm not poor. Um, and even when I was poor, I wasn't poor. But I think he kept me poor for a really long time because he knows how selfish I am. He knows that I covet and that I want what other people have. I go over to somebody else's house. I take my kids over to their house. And I'm like, man, I wish I had my house. I, I like this house. This is a nice house. This is a great house. What would you pay for this house? Okay, how much do I got to work to get a house like that? Right? Am I the only one who does that? Okay, good, good. It's getting lonely up here, guys. Um, I'll be fine, right? And, and I kind of like, you know what? I want to make more money, but it's not so that... I, I promise, because this sounds egotistical, and I'm not trying to like be like your pastor. But it's just something he's put in my heart. It's like, I would like to be able to give more. And I'm not bragging, because that's a really new thing in my brain. Because it's usually, I just want more for me. But I've gotten a lot of the stuff in life that I wanted, and I don't really care about it. Not like to the extent that I used to. It's buyer's remorse, right? You work really hard to get something that you think you need, and then you get it, and you're like, oh, yeah, I don't use that that much. <laughs> I was like, man, because that, but that, you remember, that was everything for a long time. It was everything. You had to have it. 
my kids do this. You go to the store with your kids and they see a toy and they have to have that toy. It's the toy they always wanted and it's the only thing they've ever wanted their whole life. And you buy it and they play with it for 45 minutes and then they never touch it again. Right? Happens all the time. Grown-ups are just like kids. We do the same thing. I want to put the kingdom first. I want the kingdom first. Let's pray and let's ask God, God, how am I doing financially? Convict me where I need to be convicted. Encourage me where I need to be convicted.